All right, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside. On this June morning, it's June. I'm not sure how that happened, but um, yeah, God is faithful and worthy to be praised. You know, I, I love when God connects dots that we didn't anticipate being connected. Um, even though we live in the same house, I didn't really talk to my wife about what the message was going to be focused on this morning, and the words that she chose to exhort us as a body of believers was just to come before the Lord, not expecting anything, but just to praise Him because He's worthy to be praised. Have you ever done anything so over-the-top, lavish even, to show your appreciation or love for anybody? Like, way over the top where people are looking at you going like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, how dare you? That's, that's just, that's too much. Anybody ever do anything like that for anybody that they love? Not many hands are going up, so. Um, either you're just being very gracious or modest. That's, <laughs> modest <laughs> or that's just not something that we, we think about doing um, for whatever reason. But when it comes to the Lord, and I didn't intend to start this way, but I think, I think the Holy Spirit is working because of those words that she said. That's the heart of what the message is about today. About lavishly honoring the Lord in every way with all that we have for no other reason than he's worthy. So it's a little, uh, little bonus right there before we get started. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter, well, we're going to go back and forth between 11 and 12 a little bit early on because we didn't finish 11 last week, and I don't want to leave you hanging because I told you we would. This is going to be brief because there's just a lot of tie-in from last week to this week. Let's see here if I can get set up right. <clears throat> As always, if you do have questions this morning, you hear something um, that you'd like more information on, more clarification on, or there's a point that we didn't hit that you're just wondering about from the text this morning, uh, shoot us a, a question in that digital bulletin that we sent you to earlier, PillarOceanside.com. Jump on there, find the phone number, and text that question to that number. Mike and I will come up here at the end of service and we'll we'll seek to uh, answer those questions for you, or at least point you to some resources. So love for you to interact with us in that way. Okay, did everybody make it to John chapter 11 slash 12? You're in that region? Okay, let me pray before we, we dive in and we'll get started. Lord, you are truly worthy of all that we have to give. And I pray that you would show us, Lord, through the text this morning, through the message that you placed on my heart, just how much we have to offer you because of what you've done for us. Not anything that we do in and of ourselves, Lord God, but because of the blessings you've given us, because of the incredible love that you've poured out for us, we've been positioned, Lord, to glorify and, and honor you. And that does something. It does something for your, your church, Lord, and it does something for those on the outside looking in. And we want to be good stewards. Good stewards of the glory of God. Lord, I've never 
spoken those words. <laughs> those words, you just put those on my heart right this moment. Being good stewards of the glory of God. If I was going to retitle my message, Lord, that's what it would be right now. Let's be good stewards of the glory of God this morning. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, chapter 11. What was sort of the highlight of chapter 11? What, do we, what scene evolved for us? Lazarus died, and Jesus raised him, right? We learned about the shortest verse, and that its significance is not at all that it's the shortest verse, but that there is so much more there going on behind the scenes. We see in this last closing section that we sort of, we read, but we didn't go deep into, uh, the response of the religious leaders, the people that are out there trying to come against Jesus, it reveals their heart in the matter concerning Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's exactly what we're seeing their heart exposed for all of us. And it's summed up in verse 48. If you can just look at verse 48, I'll read it if you're not there. Basically, here's what they have to say. If we let him, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's, that's their response to this incredible miracle that Jesus has just performed. What do you think, I mean, take away our nation, that's, that's understandable, the nation of Israel, but what is their place? What do you think he, they mean by take away our place? Any guesses there? Status in society? That could be? What, what's that? A religious place, perhaps? What's something over here? The homes, okay. I think all of that is encompassed in what they're saying. Uh, some scholars believe that they're actually referring to the temple itself, that the temple will be taken away from them, sort of the center, the hub of their religious belief system. So we learn now that the, the Jewish leaders, these scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they are not going to be held responsible for people following after Jesus. Like, that's just not going to happen on their watch. And they're not going to tolerate their personal lives being turned upside down by this man called Jesus. They're just not going to allow it. You see, it's, it's less about the impact on the world and more about how it's impacting them. Does that at all remind you, if you go back to the shepherd examples we've used, that the hired hand, the one who wasn't the shepherd, what did he do when the wolves came? Ran away. He wasn't interested at all in protecting the sheep. He was worried about himself. Does that sound familiar here once again? For them, it's all about self-preservation. So two things happen as a result of what is unfolding here before us. From that day forward, they make plans to kill Jesus. And Jesus never again openly walks among the Jews. That's what happens as a result of these things. So all of this then is going to transition us into today's text. In fact, a lot of the people that you read about in chapter 11 are the same folks that are involved in the story. It's just kind of a continuation of what's happening. And so I want to just take a few chunks of this text this morning. We're going to read the first three verses of John chapter 12. So if you're there, here's what it says. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment 
made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Okay, so pause there. A couple of things to take note of right off the bat. What major Jewish celebration was upon them? Passover. Good job. So John later tells us, if you flip to the end of John, don't do it now, but just take my word for it. Later in John, he tells us that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover. So the day of preparation for the Passover was actually the day where they slaughtered all of the lambs in anticipation of Passover. Now there's a little bit of confusion because other gospel writers say it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. I think what John is doing here is he's using this as an illustration. He's trying to make a point to tell us that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And that it probably wasn't the day of preparation for Passover, but it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions today. What frame of the week, time frame I should say, is the Sabbath? From when to when? From sundown on Friday to when? Sundown on Saturday. So we have a 24-hour period. The day of preparation for the Passover would be which day? It's, it's Friday because it doesn't start until the evening time. So all the preparations we've done during the day on Friday so that over the next 24 hours there would be no work. So if Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Sabbath, which day of the week would that be? Friday. And what do we know that as? Good Friday. Told you I was going to ask a lot of questions. I say all that for two reasons. One is to establish a time frame. If Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover, he would have arrived Saturday evening. That is, as Sabbath is coming to an end. And we're going to learn in the next section that Mike is going to cover next week, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem the following day which would have been what day of the week? The first day of the week for the Jews is what? Sunday. So Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is what we know today as what? Palm Sunday. Okay, everybody tracking on the, the time frame here? Okay. You get that the remainder of John's gospel is only going to encompass a week of, of time. That's where we are, okay? And the second reason I bring this up is because there are some tremendous implications here regarding Jesus and the Passover. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this, but there's some symbolism here, some things that are very important for us to understand. Passover was established way back in Exodus chapter 12, when Jesus, when, sorry, when God was bringing the people out of where? Egypt, because they had been enslaved for generations and generations. Now, there had been nine plagues on the Egyptians, and they had been suffering tremendously. But the Jews had been spared. They were not subject to any of the plagues. But now that the tenth one was upon them, everyone, even the Jews, would be subject to this tenth plague, which was what? The death of the firstborn child. Unless the Jews did what? They had to sacrifice a lamb. What kind of lamb? A spotless, perfect, blemish-free lamb. But that wasn't enough. What did they have to do after they did that? blood on the post of the home 
so that when the angel of death was coming to the house, they would see it would see the blood there and pass over that house and not take the firstborn son. I think one scripture that ties all of what I'm trying to say together, and I'm going to read it real quick. I, I really just want to whet your appetite for the things that are coming and to get you thinking about what's happening here is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The timing of Jesus' death is not coincidental. It just didn't happen to line up with Passover. The significance of hundreds and hundreds of years, generations of people celebrating what God did in Egypt must not be lost on us. Okay? All right, all of that to set us up to where we're going next. Okay, why, according to verse 2, is Jesus here in Bethany at what appears to be the home of Lazarus? Why is he there? There's a supper, there's a dinner. It's probably a celebration dinner, sort of a, a thank you, an appreciation for the miracle that Jesus had just performed raising Lazarus from the dead. We have Martha, hard at work, serving Jesus and, and all of the guests there. And then we have Mary, Mary doing something very, very special. What does Mary do in verse 3? Anoints Jesus' feet. Uh, what does she use to do that? Some ointment, some say nard, some say uh, perfume. She anoints Jesus' feet, and what does she use to wipe Jesus' feet with? Her hair. Now, think about this. First century, dirt roads, probably not socks and shoes, right? Sandals, bare feet, whatever. Anointing a person's feet, and then wiping that feet, those feet, I should say, with your hair. That, for us, and probably for them, but for us especially in this culture, Sounds very strange, incredibly odd. It's foreign to think that a person would do something like this to another person's feet, right? No, you do it all the time? When your guests come on, you tell them to kick off their feet, like, hey, let me come on, let's do it. If I were to do it with my hair, I would be awfully close. Okay? I'm trying to grow out my hair. I, I, I want to be able to do that, but, you know, it's not going to happen. Stick with me, because I want us to really understand what is happening here. There are at least three at least three important things happening in the opening verses of chapter 12. And I, I did name a sermon, but I'm just going to, yeah, I, I think I'm going to rename it, like I said. But essentially, what we see here is anointing the king and preparing the corpse. Anointing the king and preparing the corpse are a couple of things that we see here. Uh, Mary's actions are going to give us, again, three truths that emerge. If you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, here, here you are. Jesus is a king worthy of being anointed. Jesus is a king worthy of being anointed. Number two, Jesus is facing certain death and his body is being prepared for that death. And number three, which is really sort of the, the application portion for us, is that humble and sacrificial honor is what Jesus deserves from his followers. Humble and sacrificial honor. So Old Testament writings would uh, would show us that anointing would have been a traditional aspect of making 
the beginning, or marking, I should say, the beginning of a, a priest's rule, a priest's priesthood or a king's rule. That's what they would do. They would anoint them. Uh, let me give you an example. 1 Samuel 10.1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So there's an anointing for kingship. Exodus 28.41. And you shall put... On them, the sons. I'm sorry. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. What is Jesus known as? Both the what? The king and the priest, right? Interesting. So. The act, as we see, of anointing a person in the ancient world was to set them apart from the rest of humanity and the role that they'd be serving in society. And while most of the anointing, you can imagine, would have been on a person's head, there are some recorded instances, even back then, of anointing the feet. One scholar comments, the practice was rare and, more importantly, was an act of extravagance. So for Mary... To anoint Jesus' feet was to elevate that act above anything that a common person or even a king would receive. It wasn't just that she had access to his feet. He was laid out like this and that's the only thing that she could reach. That wasn't it at all. It was an intentional sign to all those around her that Jesus truly was an extraordinary king worthy of this kind of special treatment. That's what's happening here. And speaking of special... This expensive ointment right, that Mary's using, we're told in the next verse, we haven't gotten there yet, but Judas is going to tell us that it's worth 300 denarii. Um, anybody got a denarius on them? They can just look at it real quick so I can see how much it's worth. Anybody? Anybody got a $100 bill? No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> no worries. Maybe your Bible has a footnote. Mine does. Tells me how much a denarius was worth in that day. Anybody know? One day's wage for a laborer. So 300 denarii would be a year's salary when you can't consider days off and uh, festivals and things where Jews wouldn't work. That's a year's salary gone in an instant, spent on someone's feet. It was ridiculously lavish. And many would probably question her behavior, right? Even if they didn't say it out loud, like we know that Judas does. But Mary's demonstrating a principle for us, my friends, that some Christians never fully grasp. And again, I'm going to say this over and over again because I really want us to get this. Jesus deserves humble, sacrificial, extravagant honor from his disciples. If you're a Christian, that's you. Now, does this mean you have to go out and spend a whole ton of money in order to honor the Lord? Of course not. But I want to offer you four categories where you might consider ways to humbly and sacrificially honor the Lord. You ready? Well, you guys are tough this morning. Okay. Usually that, well, that means two things. One is I'm just... I'm missing it big time. Or 
The Lord is working on you. So we'll, we'll just pretend it's the second one. Four categories of ways you might consider to humbly and sacrificially honor the Lord. Time, talent, treasure, and tongue. Now, these aren't arbitrary. I would argue that these are among the top areas of our lives that we struggle with being generous in. Would anybody agree with me in that? That's why when I was praying to open the service here and I, and I heard stewarding the glory of God, stewarding, honoring the Lord, it just all like clicked with me. We've got to be stewards of these things and generous with them. So, so what are some areas right now that you feel like either one, you're, you're doing well in, or two, you could grow in? Because if Jesus is actually worthy of everything that we have to give him, then we ought to do it, right? Does he need anything from us at all? No. Do we gain anything in this life by doing these kinds of things? Not necessarily. But how we choose to honor the Lord with all that we have and how we leverage what we have for God's glory and for our good, the expansion of his kingdom, is doing something that many Christians very seldom if ever think about. So when we look at Mary's example, her willingness to sacrifice so much for Jesus. It's got to say something to us. Now, we don't know for sure, but we don't believe that Mary came from a family of, of extreme wealth. This kind of bottle or flask or whatever it was of perfume was unique. Some argue that this was a part of a dowry that she held. And by pouring it out, she literally gave away her opportunity to be married. Now consider that kind of sacrifice. It's not just a monetary thing, like Judas would point out. How many of you are willing to give up something of that magnitude? That's a tough one. <laughs> now keep also in mind, as we said, she was wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. What's significant about that? For me, the takeaway is that her whole entire person was in service of Jesus. There was nothing about her that she was withholding from serving and honoring Christ. All right, let's look at the next couple of verses, starting in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment, ointment rather, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this because he cared not. He cared about the poor, sorry, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here is one of those people that saw this lavish act and responded with a question. How dare you, Mary? How dare you do that? This could have been sold and given to the poor. Now, we just read it. Is Judas at all concerned with the poor? No, he doesn't care. Why? He wants the money. He's a thief. 
help himself. If there's a bigger pool of money, there's more that he could pull from, right? Again, verse 6, a little bit of an echo of the hired hand, the one who wasn't at all interested in caring for the flock. It was self-preservation, self-interest. And when things got difficult, I'm out of there. No vested interest. Judas had no concern, not only for the people that he was with, but for the people that they were trying to serve. Yeah, I don't have much to say on that because I think we can all go on to the point fairly well. So let me just continue and read verse 7. Jesus' response. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here's a second reason that people were anointed in the ancient world. One, as I said, was to set them apart, mark them for service, either as a king or priest or something like that. The second was in preparation for death. So we have all kinds of things nowadays that prepare, I'm not going to have to get too graphic, but to prepare bodies for um, being buried, embalming and those kinds of things. <clears throat> they didn't have that, really, especially for just the common folk. So ointments were used on the dead. They were very fragrant, so that they would literally cover up the scent of a decaying body. That was sort of the main purpose. But more than the practical reasons for anointing a corpse, Jesus is affirming Mary's actions and simultaneously pointing all of them, and us really, to what was ultimately about to happen in the next couple of days. So I want to read, as I often do, from a commentary, uh, because I think it's helpful. This one is by D.A. Carson. He says this, There's no clear evidence that Mary or anyone else understood before the cross that Jesus had to die. In other words, she wasn't prophesying or anticipating his death. She meant this to be an act of humble, costly devotion. But like Caiaphas in the last chapter, she signaled more than she knew. Remember when it said Caiaphas had prophesied about something that was happened, but he didn't really know what he was doing? This is similar. Mary, in this act, is actually signaling more than what she knew. Okay. In the culture of the day, it was not thought inappropriate to spend lavish sums at a funeral, including the cost of perfumes that were designed to stifle the smell of decay. But here was Mary, lavishly pouring out perfume on Jesus while he was yet still alive. Small wonder... Jesus is a prefiguring, sees it as a prefiguring of the anointing that would later come. Do you remember who the two people are that anoint the body at the end of chapter, at the end of John? Nicodemus is one of them who we already learned about, and Joseph of Arimathea. So you see what's happening here. He tells, "Leave, leave her alone. Leave her alone." Why? That she may keep it for the day of burial. Keep what? She's already poured out the ointment. Keep the jar. Keep what? What is she keeping? It's most likely. Again, these are things that we don't fully know and grasp. But it's most likely that Jesus is is referring to keeping or holding on to the act of anointing as a reminder of what she was willing to do. For Jesus and what ultimately he would do for the world. Hold on to that idea. Hold on to that example. 
Now, he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Some people would read that and go, oh, he's telling us that we don't need to worry about the poor. Yeah, don't worry about them. I don't know how they get that. <laughs> but um, is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he saying, yeah, don't worry about the poor. Just worry about me. Focus on me. <laughs> I don't know, what, what's really happening in here is, is there's an underlying theological, I think, principle being laid out for us. The greatest commandment, as Jesus tells us, is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Is it another one? Love Love your neighbor as yourself. In that order, right? So it's not that we're not to minister to the poor and meet those needs. We are. But who's first? The Lord. Honoring Him. Serving Him. That comes first. I think that's what's happening here. All right. Let's move to this final section here and look at the plot to kill Lazarus. Uh, read with me in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, so they came to see Jesus and Lazarus because of what Jesus had done, raised him from the dead. And I love that last part. And many were believing because of it. So the Jewish leaders weren't wrong, were they? They said, if we let him keep going, they're all going to believe. And they are. It's happening. So what's the natural response then? Well, killing Jesus obviously isn't enough. we got to kill this guy too because they're starting to believe because of him we're going to take him out. Wow. <laughs> Again, not a whole lot to say on these verses other than to, to shake your head and go, what is happening here? But listen, my friends. It goes to show that entertaining a sinful idea oftentimes requires an increasing level of commitment on your part to continue in that sinful behavior. That's what I take away from that. Not a pointing finger like, you, you, I can't believe you would do, how dare you? No, it's that sinful behavior that we all participate in, as that sinful behavior evolves, it takes an increasing level of commitment to that sin in order to remain in it. That sounds backwards. It's a weird way of looking at it, but that's exactly what's happening here. You don't just casually wander deeper into sin. It's an intentional thing that you do. That's another reason why it is so important to prioritize bringing glory and honor to God because it's really hard to do both. All right. I think you guys get the point. But I want to I point us back to the end of verse 3 as I wrap things up. Go back to verse 3 real quick. The very end of it. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Obviously, yeah, there's lavish, expensive ointment. But this is what is left behind after Mary had performed this sacrificial act. The scent of what she had done 
remained for everyone to enjoy. It was a reminder and a testimony to everyone there. Who knows, it could have lasted for days. When we're out in the world, you and I, seeking to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, trying to honor Him, what scent are we leaving behind? Is it one of love, grace, mercy, charity? Hopefully. But sometimes, is it a scent of selfishness, greed, dishonor, hypocrisy? Perhaps. People are watching you, whether you know it or not, or whether you want them to or not. As soon as you identify yourself as a believer, they're paying attention. And if your true aim is to bring honor and glory to God in all that you do, then the fragrance that you leave behind must be and will be pleasing to everyone. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us, loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Humble, sacrificial, lavish honor is what Jesus deserves from his followers. And it has an impact on us and all those around us. So I just pray that you would consider this week how we can better steward the glory of God. What areas do we need to grow in? Seeing everything that we have as an opportunity to bring glory to God and leverage it for the kingdom. That's my prayer this week. We've often talked about at the end of sermons and just how the word of God should move us to action. Again, please don't let this be another Sunday where you hear a message and you say, oh man, that was good. And then wake up tomorrow and forget everything that you heard. Commit right now to move to action. Do something about what you heard today. All of us, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to any of you guys. We have to. We must. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Worthy of all that we have. And God, we just, we pray that you would show us, remind us, in those moments where we perhaps gravitate towards selfishness, self-preservation, areas in our lives, Lord, that may be marked by a scent that is displeasing to you. Father, we know that there is tremendous grace. <laughs> Your grace is sufficient, and we are going to fall short. We, this is going to happen. We know this. But it's not an excuse to continue to live a life that pleases self and seeks 
our own good above loving you and loving others. Lord, so two things, I pray. As, as we walk this week, show us how we can be better stewards of your glory in what areas specifically. And then, Lord, secondly, move us to action through your Holy Spirit, through other believers, through the Word of God, through all these things that you've given us. Let us desire above all to be like Mary, be willing to sacrifice and give all that we have for you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.